Hello and welcome to another episode of My Box Museum. I'm your host, Alex Williams, and today I'm joined by Simon Stephen. Simon's going to share with us the ways he's gained perspective over the years, both as a child and now as an adult. We talk about the moments that matter most and how we prioritize those things. One thing I must mention before we get into this conversation is that Simon's working on some really cool projects next year. So I'm going to link all of his info in the show notes so that you can participate with him and his work. And remember, after today's show, to make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Simon Stephen, welcome to My Wax Museum. Alex, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here again for another interview. Do you want to fill the audience in on how it is that we know each other? Yeah, I uh, earlier this year on the back of a, a huge transformation from, of myself and in my life, I started to, I decided I started I needed to start telling the story, my backstory, um, in the hope of helping other people, and I proactively reached out to you because I love your show and said, Hey, listen, can we talk? And, um, I was lucky enough to be interviewed by you for broken bulbs. And I shared three of my broken bulbs with you and, um, we got on like a house on fire and, and you very kindly asked me to, to appear on this show. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. I loved your story and the, the experiences that you shared on broken bulbs. If people want to go and listen to those episodes of broken bulbs, two of them are out by now. We've got one episode 71 and then episode 128 uh, are, are both out. So people can go and check that out and hear more about your story and experience there. But today we're talking more generally about your life experience as a whole. So fill me in. Where are you from originally? I'm from Scotland originally. Um, so, yeah, I hail from just outside Edinburgh, a place called Fife. Um, so from a tiny wee village uh, just outside Edinburgh. Um, but I now find myself in Portugal. And I've had a 47-year journey from Scotland to Portugal and some serious ups and downs on the way there. And I, I, um, I talked earlier on about, about being on a feeling like I was on a roller coaster. And I, and I would certainly describe my life as having been a roller coaster, massive highs, staggering lows. Um, but I now find myself in Portugal. So a Scotsman, a Scotsman abroad, which is always dangerous. Always dangerous. <laughs> dangerous for you or dangerous for other people? Other people. <laughs> other people, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, okay, tell, t- tell me about your time in Scotland. What was it like growing up in Scotland? It's one of these places where you you probably don't appreciate it until you're away from there. And you certainly don't appreciate how beautiful it is and how lucky you are to be raised there. Um, I was, I come from a good family. My parents, both hardworking uh, professionals. Uh, I went to uh, a boarding school in Scotland, which I hated, absolutely despised it. Um, and I'm not one of those people that says, Oh yes, childhood, you know, my childhood was wonderful and my school was fantastic. Um, difficult childhood, traumatic at points um but scotland as a whole when i look back on it i spend an awful lot of my time in the school holidays outside i'd be one of these people who would get up early go out of the house and i'd be playing in the woods all day i'd be in the woods i'd be making camps building fires up to mischief and then my father would get me back into the house i kid you not he'd know if i was far enough away he would literally fire a shotgun in the air and it was his signal that it was dinner time and it was time for me to come back. 
um, that would be the sign for me to come back. And and uh, and people thought I was joking when I said that until a friend came to stay with me and I was out, we the two of us were out playing in the woods and all of a sudden the gun went off and he was like, what was that? And I said, that's dinner. And that was the dinner bell was my dad standing outside his house, however far away it was, <laughs> firing a shotgun in the air and that was the signal to come back for dinner. So I had a really blessed childhood in many ways. I, I traveled a lot with my parents saw the world a lot um, or saw a lot of the world. But at the same time, Scotland's a funny place to grow up. Uh, it, it's it's quite a closed community, bloody cold. Um, it's not, you know, you, you spend most of your life transparent because you've not seen the sun. Um, it, it's uh, an interesting place, but I wouldn't change it. And it's still my favorite place on earth is to go back to Portugal. Uh, go back to Scotland, rather. Sorry, what am I talking about? Right. Interesting. Yeah. T- um, what what were the best things about that community that you had growing up because it was Scotland, because it was tight knit like that? The best things about the community. Um, we're a very proud people. Uh, we're a very shat on people, which is a good Scottish expression, which means you're the underdog. We, we are, we love being the underdog. And so, and other Scots listening into this will nod. They'll be nodding right now. Rugby is a prime example. We never win the championship. We, we never win the championship. Uh, there are, in the six nations, as it's called, there's Scotland, England, Ireland, Wales, France, and Italy, the six teams that play. And invariably, we come sixth or fifth in the table. But none of it matters a damn as long as we beat England. Hmm. That's all that matters. There, there simply is no other. It's a bit like Canada, USA in the mm-hmm. ice hockey or something like that. Yeah. It's one of those kind of things. So I love the the feeling of being part of an underdog community that we're always striving to to make our name to shout the loudest to 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 cause more carnage if you want to call it that way. Um the downside I suppose is that everybody knows everybody. You can't get away with anything in Scotland. And Scotland's an incredibly small community. Whether you're from Glasgow, Edinburgh, Inverness, Aberdeen doesn't matter where you're from. You know everybody it doesn't take an awful lot for your name to be mud uh, 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 across the country. That's for damn sure. Hmm. Interesting. That, it, it, Scotland's always fascinated me. I've got ancestry from there, like, I mean, probably half Canadians do. And, uh, and, and so I've always been interested in it. What would you say are the key points, since I'm going to visit next year, hmm. what are the most important places to go to? I, you, you, look, you've, you've got to do... You've got to do some of the big tourist ones. You have to, because you've got to tick the box, right? So you've got to do Edinburgh Castle. You've got to go and do Loch Ness. You've, you've got to do these sort of things. But actually, some of the most beautiful things are not the most widely publicized. And, and I'm happy to provide you with a list as long as you're armed. But um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a coast road called the North Coast 500, the NC 500, which takes is a loop from Aberdeen, I think it was Aberdeen, all the way around the top edge of Scotland and round back to the bottom again. Some of the most, it is renowned as being one of the top 10 driving world, roads in the world. Um, but there's a time to go and a time not to go. You, you don't want to go in the summertime because all the caravans are on it. So you can't get up more than 30 miles an hour. So it's pointless. You don't want to go in the autumn time because you get bitten to death by mosquitoes and midges. So it's a bit like, and um, we've talked before about going to Nova Scotia. I probably went to Nova Scotia at the wrong time. I, I went out to Nova Scotia when it was mosquito season mm-hmm. and the mosquitoes in Nova Scotia were about half the size of the car I was driving. <laughs> um, and, and it's one of those ones. So th- there are lots of, there are loads of things I can't recommend highly enough. There are parts of Edinburgh, for instance, which are not on the tourist trail, but they are wonderfully unique, amazing bars, amazing pubs, amazing people. Um, and I would recommend that you do, you tick the box with the three or four things that are on every guidebook. 
and then you go a bit more wild. And I'm happy to point you to a couple of websites which are really good at giving advice on where to get off the beacon yeah. track, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's a great book, a uh, great book called uh, Best of Scotland or Scotland the Best, which is, again, great book for finding bars that you won't find the tourists in. And I recommend that highly. Yeah. Yeah. OK, I'll we'll, we'll have to talk more about that after that. Yeah, anytime. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm super excited to to visit. And you were talking about how growing up you got to travel a little bit and you've traveled a lot since in your adult life. Tell me a little bit about what that did for you as far as, I guess, building your perspective on the world, like building your world outlook. I, I had a pretty wide perspective on life at quite a young age. Um, I remember going with my father, my mom and my dad. Um, I crossed from Jordan. Uh, we'd, been in, we'd been in Saudi Arabia. Our father had been working in Saudi Arabia and we'd been over in Saudi and we'd driven, uh, we'd flown to Jordan. We'd been in Amman. And then my father had hired a car and we crossed into Israel. And uh, we went in the Dead Sea and we floated. We did the thing, you know, you float in the Dead Sea and because all that kind of stuff. And even at that young age, I'd have been 11, maybe 12. Um, and I remember the checkpoints on the Jordanian side and the checkpoints on the Israeli side and being staggered that on the Jordanian side there was basically one half asleep guy with an AK-47 and on the Israeli side it was like going into the armaments depot at the Pentagon really it, it, it was oh yeah I mean it was and even at that age I remember thinking wow that's quite an extraordinary thing and being really amazed in Israel at the the level of defense they'd put up around themselves and so on. And, and, you know, particularly pertinent right this moment with everything that's going on right now in Israel and, and Palestine. And I remember at, at that age and, and, and things like that did create an impression on me. So by the time I went to secondary school, age 13, I had a huge, a, a much wider view of the world than majority of people I was at school with, which was good and bad. It was good because I was able to, uh, I was able to talk a lot more in, whether it be history or English classes, whatever it may be, the downside was that um, I was a wee bit opinionated, I think, at school. Uh, and I had some p fairly radical political views quite early. Um, and when you're young and you're 13, 14, you can't probably articulate them as well as you'd like to. And thank God there wasn't Twitter around then <laughs> and social media around then because I would be one of those guys that have been blacklisted by now because you say things when you're young that you don't really understand. Mm-hmm. You, you just put down an opinion, but th they did shape me enormously. And so when I then traveled in later life in my career, I was kind of used to, it. I, you know, long distance travel, long haul, staying places, weird place. It, it was kind of second nature to me by the time I got into any kind of career. Um, I was very lucky. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I I mean, I think everybody or a lot of people that I know have that, idea of oh it'd be cool to see the world you know have a career to see the world or go with your family to travel and see the world and so tell me a little bit about the career that you got into and how that allowed you to to travel so much so i i met my i met my wife when we were very young and um we had a running joke uh we met uh we met three days later she moved in three weeks later she was pregnant um and she fell pregnant with our daughter, Daisy. Um, and I kind of realized that I needed to get a proper job. I needed to get into a career of some sort. And sales seemed like an obvious thing. I thought, yeah, sales, that's relatively easy. I'll try that. 
And I got into it and I was very good at it very quickly and very quickly rose up the ranks, got out of sales and more into the sort of um, delivery side of things, project management, then got out of that and got into the strategic enablement side. And then from there, got into and, and gradually weaved my, my career. I, I built my own career for myself effectively and ended up. Um, you know, at the height of my career, I was running the international business of a huge global consulting firm. Um, I was advising banks. I was advising governments. I was traveling around the world, business class, first class, staying in the best hotels, earning staggering amounts of money. I mean, obscene amounts of money um, for what I was doing, really, really, you know, in, in truth. And my travel was purely uh, it was purely about getting from a to b i became really very blasé about the travel i remember when i remember when i was a kid when i go to the airport i'd know if you're we going somewhere cool because you get on a 747 you get on a jumbo jet if you got to the gate and there was a jumbo jet waiting there you knew you were going somewhere cool and that was the days when air travel was still awesome you know um and as I got into my career and traveled more, it became so tedious, so boring, so dull to get on another plane, go to another place and oh God, and another, yet another yet another seat in business class that reclines all the way back and poor me because I've only got I've only got a life flat bed for the you know, it was it, I became so blase about it. And interestingly, I I I kind of lost my perspective on on where I was going. So I traveled to these incredible places, whether it be India or the Far East, Australia, New Zealand, South America, Canada, USA, wherever I went. And it would be get to the airport, get in the car that was waiting, get to the hotel, prep for the meetings, do the meetings, drink a lot with clients, get back on a taxi, back to the airport, fly home. And one of my regrets is that there were so many places I've been throughout my career where I should have booked an extra day. So I could have done some sightseeing. I could have gone and seen something. I could have gone and done something and i didn't tick those boxes because i think unfortunately that's that's been part of the problem and why i talked earlier about my transformation as a whole when you're asking me the questions i i got to a point where i was so fixated with money so fixated with material gain so fixated with success as defined by industry i'd lost complete perspective and reality and what was actually important my wife didn't like me my kids didn't like me my friends didn't like me no one wanted to hang out with me I didn't even see it. And it got to a point where it was so bad, I attempted suicide three and a half years ago, Alex, as you know. And my work ever since then has been around trying to, has been trying to understand myself and the reasons for it, trying to build a new life for myself with this hill farm I bought in Portugal. And also now about telling the story and giving it, giving something back to the wider world and saying to people, you know what, it, when you're told that the big Mercedes that's just come out or the bigger house next door or the foreign holiday to this place, that's the most important thing to, 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 to be crude. It's bullshit. And, and I can tell you that firsthand. The things that are the most important are some of the things I touched on when we were, when you were asking the questions, it's those moments you have with your kids that you're never going to get back again. And you miss them because you're away. You're with clients, you're traveling, you're in a hotel somewhere, you're far too busy, far too important. Everything is far more, far more important to you than, than seeing your kids first school play. It's more important than seeing your kids first sports day. It's whatever you'll find a thousand excuses as to why you can't do those things. And it's only when you've almost lost them that you look back and go, oh, hell, why did I miss that? Why, why did I miss that opportunity to see my kids doing that? Or why did I miss the opportunity to tell my wife 
how great she was or what she did that day was brilliant or whatever it may be. And so for me, whilst I had a huge amount of travel and a lifestyle that most many would turn around and say, you were so lucky, you were so fortunate. Yeah, I was, but it can go horribly wrong if you don't keep a sense of perspective and don't keep your feet on the ground. Hey, future Alex here, just interjecting to mention that My Wax Museum does have an Instagram page that I know you'll want to check out because we've got a bunch of bonus content on there. It's simply at My Wax Museum on Instagram. That's it. Nice and easy. See you over there. Now back to the show. What was it that you started to do to bring your feet back to the ground and to, to regain that perspective? And the first thing I, I mean, the first thing that happened after I, so the suicide attempt, I didn't even see it coming. It wasn't like there was a build up to it. It wasn't like I'd sat there for weeks going, I'm depressed. It was literally one night. I just had had enough of everything. I had no relationship with my wife, my children, my friends. I wasn't happy in myself. I was overweight. I was drinking huge amounts. I was in a terrible state. And, and so after that, I had to go and face the music, so to speak. And so the first thing I did was sat with my wife who turned around and said, yeah, do you know what? You're an ass." And I don't like you and I haven't liked you for a long time. And um, you're not a nice person and you're not a good dad and you're not a good husband. And that's brutal when you're told that yeah. straight up. And they're getting the same from your friends as well. When they say to you, actually, we've not liked you for years. We've always thought you're a selfish bastard. We've always thought you were this, you that, maybe, whatever. And so the first part of it for me was about understanding what other people thought about me, what my behaviors had been like, how much I'd hurt people, how much I'd hurt strangers as well, people I hardly knew, that I was prepared to step on or over anyone to get what I wanted. And that's a very hard thing to to hear. But if you take all that, what I tried to do was take all that and go, okay, so what do I do about myself now? And so there's been a whole load of things, right? From, I've, you know, I've done therapy, I've read books, I've done as much reading as I possibly could and understanding of what I can do to understand myself. But the most fundamental thing was saying, I've got to get out of this life. Um, I've got to get out of where I am. So we sold everything we had. We moved. We bought this hill farm where I am now in Portugal, in the middle of nowhere in Portugal. I've never picked up a, a garden hoe in my life. I have no idea how to farm. I have no idea how to grow olives or look after sheep or, 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 or drive a tractor or anything. No idea at all. And so it was completely out of my comfort zone. And it forced me to start appreciating appreciating simpler pleasures, simpler benefits, simple, more simple joys. And gradually over time, my relationship with my wife started to to improve. My relationship with my children got stronger. My relationship with my friends got stronger. I did lose people. I'm not going to deny that. There were people who turned around and said, no, sorry, you don't get the chance to come back again. And my wife said something to me that has stayed with me forever and and it always will, which was, there's no point just continually saying, I'm sorry. The most sincere form of apology is a consistent change of behavior. I need to see long-term consistent change of behavior until it becomes default. Instead of in, So that instead of selfishness being your default, selflessness is your default, that kindness is your default, care is your default. And dare I say it without sounding too woo-woo and wishy-washy, love is your default. And if you had said to me four years ago, Alex, that I'd be sitting talking to you on a live broadcast saying love is the answer, I'd have asked you to shoot me in the back of the head. (laughs) But I can genuinely say, hand on heart, the difference in me, the difference in my relationships, the difference in my friendships, the difference in my how I feel of a day to day 
has been changed immeasurably by by taking that approach to things and and realizing that the industry standard of success or the society's definition of success is completely warped completely skewed not helped by social media not helped by the millennial generation or some of the the very much younger members of the millennial generation who seem to be obsessed with talking about money and gain and so on and so forth but there is a genuine story but sort of tried and tested story in this that says okay i've done both and trust me the love and the kindness and the care thing so much better so much nicer and and that's that's the sort of background to it all yeah i i'm curious maybe i i mean obviously the, this is all about you and your experience but then maybe maybe taking that out and expanding that uh, a little broader to the rest of the world what do you hope might change with people going forward or what do you think can be done in order to make sure that you know people are defaulting to love and to care and to selflessness uh, do you know something I've been hugely disappointed with actually is that uh, on the back of the coronavirus when, when when covid first kicked off there was a lot of talk, if you remember, last March, April, May time about the fact that suddenly it was an opportunity for everybody to go back to basics. Everybody was suddenly communicating on Zoom. Families around the world are reconnecting. They were talking on Zoom every week and doing quizzes. And it was a, a this wonderful opportunity for the world to embrace a united front against coronavirus. And there was a lot of talk about how it was going to be world changing. How, how everyone, it was a bit like the old, the only time people talk on the, on the, on the subway in New York is when the lights go out. It was one of those moments. It was a, a seminal opportunity for the world to embrace in a common cause. Um, and what's disappointed me is as time's gone on and the vaccines have come out and the vaccines started to be rolled out, so we've started to revert to type again. And it's become this thing of people going, well, I've got the vaccine before you. Or will, are we going to get passports for that? No, we're not. This, which country's ahead? Which is behind? Even, even people I know relatively well have, have taken on this mild xenophobia of, oh, well, there's an Indian variant now, so we can't have any Indians in the house, or we can't have any Indians nearby, as if it's, a, as if it's something to do with the country of origin. And I've been hugely disappointed by what's happened as a society. And so for me, I, I, I'm prepared to put my hands up and be vulnerable to the world and say, I was an absolute monster. I was selfish and horrible and greedy and mean and unkind and nasty. And you can all throw stones at me and hit me with sticks and do all these things. But if you listen to one thing I say, it's you've got to stop regarding the success as defined by industry or by society as being the thing to go for and start instead looking at it from a place of love and kindness and so on. And from a corporate perspective, organizations have got to start taking mental health and corporate well-being more seriously. They, they all pay it lip service. They all pay it lip service. And there are numerous stories of organizations out there. If you go and talk to any big business and say, oh, yes, we have a policy in place to help our to, about corporate well-being. And we give everybody one day a month where they can choose to stay at home if they want to. And we'll have a family get together picnic on a, every third month or whatever. These are all box ticking exercises. They are not long term. They are not sustainable and they're not going to make a difference. Any organization that pays its staff based on targets and achieving certain uh, achieving certain targets, as I said, you are automatically putting those people in a competitive situation. You're making them fight against one another and their competitors to be the best, to be the most successful. 
give people a chance to say to them, you know, a company, if it turned around and said, you know what we're going to do, we're going to take away $1 from your paycheck for every time you send an email after seven o'clock at night. Anytime you send an email between seven o'clock at night, and seven in the morning, we're going to take 25 cents or whatever it is off your, your paycheck or, um, your default is to work from home. We'd like you to come into the office a couple of days a week, but we'd prefer if you stayed at home five days and you come in a couple of days a week. Um, we want you to have the ability to choose the days you take off. We prefer you don't want to take, we don't want you to take, you get 28 days given to you every year. And I know in the US and Canada, it's a lot less, but in Europe, the normal is 25 to 28 days a year holiday. We're going to, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to tell you, you are, you can, you can take the days you want to take off. As long as you achieve what you need to achieve and do it, we're absolutely fine with it. There are dozens of ways that organizations can promote well-being. And the irony is by doing that, you're not making your workforce less productive. You're not making them less loyal. You're making them more productive. You're making them happier. You're making them, you're getting better retention rates because the staff don't want to leave. They want to stay where they are because they feel they're looked after. They feel you care about them and their families and so on. And unfortunately, there are too many stories still. And I think it's still the lion's share of organizations out there who are not taking corporate well-being and employee well-being seriously enough. And, and I'm a living testament to the fact that it doesn't matter how much money you throw at your employees. It doesn't matter how much bonus you give them or, or, or all the things you offer them on the plate. You can still screw someone's head up royally and they've got to take it more seriously. I like that. Uh, so now looking now, you've had this awakening and, you know, I think four or five years ago, you would have defined success very differently from how you're defining it now. So how are you defining it now? What looking at your life now, what do you look at in your life and say like, yeah, I'm successful? Uh, being able to go to sleep at night and not lie awake worrying. Being able to wake up in the morning and not have a knot in my stomach within 10 seconds of waking up. Uh, to be able to sleep has made a huge difference. Um, knowing that when the phone rings from my son or my daughter, it's going to be a nice phone call. It's not going to be them being cold, being mean, whatever it may be. Um, Alex, you know this, we, we've spoken before, but my wife and I actually separated in December because she'd got to a point where she said, you know, I've dedicated my life to you and to managing you and coping with you. And, and you've given us an amazing life and you've been great in that regard, but actually I need a life for myself now. And so she left and I was heartbroken. I, you know, January, December, January, February, you know, I was really getting a bit worried about myself because I thought, well, I'm, I'm feeling some of those old feelings. Those old demons are creeping back in. We now find ourselves mid-May. I find myself a lot more at peace. I'm able to look at her and say, I'm able to speak to her and be happy for her and calm for her and supportive of her and wish her the best and all these things. That's success. That for me is success. That's a sign that I have changed beyond measure. Um, because I'm not adopting the same attitudes I would have done four years ago. She'd left. And here's the irony. I gave her every reason to leave me. I was a shitty husband. I gave her every reason to leave and she didn't. She stuck in. She supported me. She backed me to the hilt when her friends told her that she should leave me, all these kind of things. And ironically, three and a half years later or, or three years later, where I were in December, 
I had changed massively. I was much nicer, much kinder, much calmer, all these things. I thought I was ticking every box of what she wanted in the husband. What I failed to appreciate was that I had, I had not taken into account the fact that she had kind of put her life on hold for me. And she has every right to have a life on her own. She has every right to live the life she wants to live. And if she chooses it to be without me, so be it. And actually, the right answer is for me to, to love her and be supportive of it and be kind to her and gentle to her and help her in, in doing that as much as it might hurt. That, for me, is a definition of success. It's the ability to love and care for someone irrespective of what they do to you. It's because you have enough self-respect enough self-care and enough self-belief that you can you can give that uh you can give that support even when someone hurts you and and going back to a point on the questions the only thing that hasn't come back to me is my confidence but i realized looking back that what i had before wasn't confidence when i was in industry and in corporate it was arrogance there's a big difference is a big, big difference. I can't be confident now because I still don't know what all the buttons do on the tractor. <laughs> I still, I can't be confident now because I still don't know which end of the sheep to grab first. <laughs> I, I, I can't. So my confidence is coming, but it's in a very different way. It's a much cooler, calmer confidence that comes. And ironically, it comes from it comes from a place that I used to look at in movies. I used to see characters in movies who were just they were just chilled and they were confident. They just oozed sort of balance and calmness that's where i'm trying to get to what i had before was arrogance it was absolute rigid belief that i was the best of the best and no one would get in my way yeah i i I like that and what what you're talking about with people in movies where they're just cool they're it's level right they're not they're not showy but everybody knows they're cool and they're confident because they're they're level they got it (laughs) together they're calm absolutely yeah, I, yeah. I, I had um. He's, he's still one of my heroes. Do, do you remember um Point Break? Uh, I haven't seen it, but remember, I've heard of it. The original Point Break. Patrick Swayze okay. plays this character called Bodie, who's this surf. He's a surfing, skydiving bank robber. He's like mm-hmm. the coolest character that ever lived, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. And um, he just had this. He just had this way in it. And again, he's an act. It, it was an act. He's an actor, but he he portrayed this character who's just. He was still out there and he still did amazing things and he was still, you know, a bit crazy, but he was just totally at ease with himself. He was confident, but not arrogant. He was strong, but not a bully. He was all the good attributes without the bad bits attached to them. And the Bodhisattva, as he was called, the Bodhi, Bodhi for me is still someone I look at and go, if it was a cross between Bodhi and ironically the Sam Elliott character in Roadhouse, that would be my... That would be the ultimate for me. If I could get Sam Elliott's voice as well, oh, man, I would anybody, be happy. Yeah, so happy. I'd take that. <laughs> oh, would you ever? That man could read me bedtime stories, I tell you. <laughs> and it could be about anything too. It, I, I I don't care what it is. He could, he'd turn anything into a bedtime story. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I would the, I would not be single for long if I had a voice like Sam Elliott and a body like Patrick Swayze in, uh, in, uh, in what's it called? In Point yeah, Break. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's just certain people who just exude that confidence and, and coolness. I yeah. like that. Uh, I, yeah. I have a zillion other things that I, I want to ask you, but we are we're running up on time. So I'm going to jump to my last question here. And that is, 
at the end of your life, when you're looking back on everything you've accomplished up to now and going forward in the future as well, the ways that you've changed and the, the people who you now come to have more care and appreciation for, what are the things that you're going to look back on with the most pride and with the most satisfaction? Do you know, I can do better than answering that myself. I'm not sure. I have a up on, up on my wall. I have to forgive me for reading from a piece of paper, but I'm but I I don't know it off by heart. Ralph Waldo Emerson. I, did I, did I, have I talked to you about this? Mm -mm, I don't think so. Ralph Waldo Emerson. He defines success in the most beautiful way. And now when I look at what I want to be and remembered for, he sums it up perfectly. He said, success is to laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate the beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. I like that. That is beautiful. For me, that's, I want to look back and people go, he was hell of a character. He had two halves to his life. In the first half, he was definitely dark side. In the second half, he went full-blown, he went full-blown Anakin and became, and became the good guy. And helped people and loved people and cared for people and i want to be living proof that you can change that leopards can change their spots that's my goal i like that i like that and with that i just want to say thank you very much for joining me alex is always a pleasure talking to you thank you so much for having me on the show and thank you for listening not just to the show which we certainly do appreciate but more so to the people around you the people from your everyday life that you just happen to know. Make five minutes today to listen intently to the people around you. Mecco.